1: Today we're going to be welcoming a new guest to our series on the history of waterfowl harvest management. Uh, Today we're going to be digging into some details on adaptive harvest management. We introduced this topic with Dale and Ken, but today I am I am pleased to be welcoming a as our guest, a guy that spent the better part of his career in harvest management for waterfowl and various analytical aspects of that. Certainly was an influential figure in the development and implementation of adaptive harvest management. Uh, Very quantitatively minded and I am excited to welcome to this episode, Dr. Jim Nichols, retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, U.S. Geological Survey, I think, most recently. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us here and, and being willing to discuss adaptive harvest management in a bit more detail. So, welcome, Jim.
0: Oh, thanks very much, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, it is my treat, I feel like it's more my treat to to have you on as a guest. I have, for as long as I've been in this career, uh, sort of seen your name associated with a lot of the work that has been done regarding waterfowl harvest management. Um, and to get to speak with you about some of this is a, is a true treat. So thank you for sharing your time with us here. And to get started, Jim, I, how about you provide a bit of background, personal and professional background to our listeners on, I guess, what you spent the majority of your career doing. You can actually start before that and talk about where you went to school and even where you grew up and things of that nature. But uh, yeah, just give people an idea of, of who you are.
0: I grew up in the mountains in, uh, Western Virginia, not West Virginia, but Western Virginia. Um, but because it was the mountains there, I grew up without any sort of waterfowling tradition at all. You know, there's plenty of hunting there, but, uh, but not of ducks and geese. And really I didn't begin waterfowl hunting until I actually moved to Maryland around the Chesapeake Bay for, uh, for my, my first job. Um, I went to school um, at Wake Forest University for uh, for an undergraduate degree and then LSU and Michigan State University for graduate work. And once again, you're going to think I'm a poor guy for your show here because in neither of those cases did my research have anything to do with with waterfowl. Um, What they did have to do with was population dynamics of harvested species. And so when I got out of school, I looked around for positions and was thinking of either a university or a, a government agency. And I saw this one from the... It was had an odd name that uh, you're probably much too young to, to remember or know about, but It's called Migratory Bird and Habitat Research Lab, which was sort of an outgrowth of the old migratory bird population station that lived at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. So that's where it was housed. Anyway, they had an opening for somebody to focus on population dynamics of waterfowl. And specifically, it had a lot to do with estimation and modeling. And just because I'd had you know my graduate work involved some of that stuff, I guess they were uh, silly enough to, to offer me a job and hire me. And so I uh, went out there and basically did a crash course in uh, sort of duckology. tried to learn as much as I could in a real quick time. Uh, for example, my first summer there, I was uh, I was really lucky. I was able to accompany uh, Art Brazda, an old Fish and Wildlife Service uh, pilot, um, up into the prairies uh, during the times when folks were banding ducks. So this was this would be late summer, and basically fly around with him from uh, one banding station to another in uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and we'd stop and drink beer and ban ducks for a few days and then move on to another place. But it was a really neat experience. Uh, anyway, lots of things like that to sort of try to immerse me in, uh, in the waterfowl world. Um, I became a regular attendee at the uh, Flyway regulations meetings. Um, I went more frequently to the Mississippi and Central than any others. But in any case, I became immersed in uh, sort of uh, waterfowl management, especially harvest management. Um, now, in those days, I'll, uh, this is maybe a little more than you wanted, but it, it's kind of, uh, anyway, it's sort of relevant and important to me. Um, in those days, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service folks were put into two different categories, there were research folks and management folks. And luckily, the research lab that I landed in was one where the center director had a real strong tie to management. And he basically had the idea that research folks shouldn't even exist if they weren't real darn useful to management. And, that, uh, and I, I still kind of hold that belief myself that, you know, it's not this idea of research folks sort of do random walks into places that are interesting to them, but they remain focused on what their information is supposed to be useful for. And for me, it was very easy to keep that focus because there was a real important part of the Office of Migratory Bird Management that was housed there at Patuxent. And those were the folks that coordinated aerial surveys, you know, the duck counts each May, and the folks that did stuff like estimate survival rates and harvest rates from band recovery data. And so there was a real quantitative group of folks who just happened to be in the management bucket. I was in the research bucket, but we both worked together as a group really, really well. And for the first uh, almost two decades of my career there, um, that's what I did. And I will mention that in the early 1990s, all the research folks from Fish and Wildlife Service were kind of yanked out of Fish and Wildlife Service and placed in first something called the National Biological Survey. and later in the U.S. Geological Survey, none of of it made any sense to me. But so for the remainder of my career, I was was not with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And in fact, there were no administrative um, pressures sort of to work with Fish and Wildlife Service folks. But luckily, because of the fact that I cultivated these various personal relationships and interests with the Office of Migratory Bird Management, I was able to um keep on working with those folks for the for the rest of my career. And it was it, it wasn't as, as good as it was, because I, I was shunted off on some other things. I've you know, worked on tiger and India and manatees and spotted anyway, a whole bunch of different things. But at least I was able to um hopefully obtain uh, retain some working relationship with the fellows in the office of migratory bird management. And you know, I officially retired in 2015, but I'm still, uh, Scott Broomer and I, have uh, and well, Fred Johnson, a number of other folks, We, I we still am working on folks uh, on, excuse me, on topics that have to do with waterfowl and waterfowl management. So I apologize if that was a bit long-winded, but I, um, anyway, wanted to let folks know uh, my interest in management.
1: No, I appreciate you doing so, Jim. That that type of more extended background, I, I find very interesting. And um, you know, certainly once you've retired, you it means you've spent your you've had a long career behind you. And so there comes with that uh, a number of a number of stops along the way, or maybe not necessarily stops in terms of a physical location, but in terms of the type of things that you worked on. So, no, every bit of that background is relevant. I appreciate appreciate you uh, sharing that. And with regard to you still being engaged in some of these harvest management topics, uh, there's there a there's a tendency for that to happen. The people that have demonstrated throughout their career tremendous competencies in, in certain areas, tend to find a way to, um, well, those of us that are that are left behind, still employed, uh, we're still actively working, find a way somehow to bring those people that were, that are retired back into our, uh, back into our, our efforts in some way. And so that's, that, that's a compliment to you, obviously, but uh, everyone that knows you will certainly appreciate that and understand that. So good to have you still in some of those conversations. I also wanted to ask you, like when you when you came out of grad school, um, how much did you know about the as a as a population ecologist? That effort depends on data. In order to make progress in learning about populations, you have to have data, right? So, uh, when you came out of grad school, uh, how much? Did you know about the level of data acquisition that was that was in place for waterfowl? And then once you really became immersed in it, were you as a population ecologist sort of like a kid in a candy store, having access to all these different streams of data at such large scales?
0: Yeah. uh, So, the first part did I know much about it before I applied for the position and, uh, or, or excuse me, coming out of graduate school, the answer is no, I had no clue. That there was a group who um, sort of monitored uh, populations as extensively as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does, uh, and well, in states and CWS as well, and private outfits such as the I had no idea such an effort was, uh, was was going on for a population at that level. And in fact, I've um, made statements many times that of all the sort of population monitoring efforts that I know of over the world for uh, for vertebrates. I don't know of any that is as impressive to me as the the one that is uh, basically for continental waterfowl in, in the, uh, North America. Now, in terms of uh, what I did is once I found out about this position, I did do a little bit of homework. And I had, I sort of uh, gained a bit of an idea that, yeah, it did look like a lot of stuff would be, uh, a lot of interesting data were available. And that's one of the things that excited me uh, about the position. Uh, What I didn't realize was that I I sort of figured out, I sort of had this notion that, boy, if you estimated all these things that uh, folks were able to estimate for ducks, population size, age ratio, something about reproductive rate. Uh, and then survival rates as well I thought man you've got you've got it all there is no question you can't uh, address uh, once you've got all that stuff and only when I got to um, my position and starting asking questions about the influence of harvest for example on population dynamics that I realized that it was uh, it, it was more than than just lots of data. You had to think hard about um, anyway situations and contrasts that allowed you to collect just the right data. But yeah, I was I was very very excited about the um, the sort of the monitoring programs that had been established by folks who had just an incredible amount of foresight. I, I can't imagine um, anyway the, the foresight of some of the fellows, uh, Walt Chrissy and folks who uh, established some of these programs a long long time ago.
1: I know everyone in this profession is thankful that whatever happened when you were looking for jobs coming out of school that directed you to uh, to, to the one that you ended up applying for and being offered and accepting uh, whatever the circumstances were around that we're all thankful that you that it led you to your your career in this field because you uh, it, you have made. Tremendous contributions to what it is that we're going to talk about here and and beyond. But uh, so that kind of leads me in a transition to our uh, to our our topic, and that is one of adaptive harvest management. We have introduced this already in our conversations with Ken uh, Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg, but we wanted to get someone on here to talk uh, in a bit more detail. And when I say in a bit more detail, that can that can mean any number of things when we start talking about adaptive harvest management. Uh, you, you and you would be qualified to discuss any and, and all of that to whatever depth we wanted to. Um, at some level, some more detailed level, we wanted to dig into this topic. And we thought it would be useful to kind of go back to the years when adaptive harvest management was first being conceived, first being introduced, uh, Dale and Ken have shared some of what that environment was like in the harvest regulation regulation setting process uh, that led to the implementation of adaptive harvest management in 1995, and it's been in place been in place ever since. And hunters of today are know probably know the term adaptive harvest management, but how much they they understand about about how it works and some of the different pieces is uh, that's probably highly variable across our our population of hunters. And so this is an opportunity to do a bit of a historical reflection on what the, what things were like at the beginning of AHM, why it came about, and then also talk in some detail about the components of it. We're not going to be able to get into every aspect of adaptive harvest management and all the different population models, but um, you're you were highly recommended as a person that we should talk to about this because of your involvement from the beginning. So let's let's start there back to the early uh, well I guess let me ask you this. Remind me Jim when you first came to the Fish and Wildlife Service. What year was that?
0: That was uh, 1976.
1: So long time ago. Okay. So 1976 that means that you would have been around for uh, the Stabilized Regulations Program, if I remember correctly, that came about in 1979. That was a precursor to to uh, adaptive harvest management. And there's, a, we've talked about that also with Ken and and Dale. So I assume that you worked on the in some way with the stabilized regulations program and everything that came out of that. Talk a little about what that time was like, what we were learning or what we were still uncertain about with regard to harvest management, uh, and how our harvest regulatory decisions influence waterfowl population dynamics, ultimately leading us to begin discussing an alternative model, uh, which eventually became AHM. The key
0: uncertainty, I guess, about how to, uh, how to set regulations, about smart ways to set regulations, had to do with the influence of uh, harvest rates on populations. And a lot of it was focused at that time on uh, on survival rates. And there were basically two um, kind of uh, simple-minded, but extreme hypotheses about how that happened and there was, um, whichever one of those hypotheses was right, they led to very different kinds of regulations. And so it was natural that there was a lot of, uh, of dissension and argument about those. And so the basic hypotheses are the one, we, it's often called the additive mortality hypothesis, but it basically says if you shoot one bird, during the hunting season, and that's one fewer bird that's got a chance to make babies and uh, and contribute to the population in the, for the next fall flight, the next hunting season. And then you had an alternative uh, sort of hypothesis that says, well, wait a minute, there's something going on such that if you end up taking birds during the uh, hunting season, somehow it's, things are a little bit better for the guys that are left, the guys that survive the hunting season, and you actually don't have much of a reduction in the ability of the spring population to produce a, a nice fall flight for the next year. And there are a couple of mechanisms that could produce this so-called compensatory mortality hypothesis. One, I can talk about those, but maybe maybe for right now, I'd just say there are a couple of stories that could, could lead to that. Well, okay, I'll just say one of them has to do with this notion of density dependent mortality, which basically says, okay, during the wintertime, there's a certain amount of uh, food, say, for, uh, for ducks to eat. And if we go ahead and reduce the number of ducks that are around at the end of winter when times are tough and reduce it via hunting, then the guys that are left, they have much less competition for the food that's around and are better able to survive, actually exhibit higher survival rates... Um, to get to the spring uh, for a chance to breed, then if they had been had if they had had to compete with all these other individuals that ended up not being around because they they'd been shot, so that was one of of two sort of uh, main mechanisms that could have produced this thing called compensatory mortality, and so that was sort of the key uncertainty in how you um, model develop models that project consequences of your management decisions, which is how many birds do we uh, do we shoot? What kinds of harvest rates do we try to attain each year? And of course, you can imagine that people with very, anyway, that, that different people would have very, you know, would, would tend to gravitate to one or more, to one of those two hypotheses, depending on sort of their views about how duck populations were doing or what was important to them. In other words, it turned out, for example, some state agencies, the state biologists, they tended to view their um, uh, jobs at that time as basically trying to do the best, which which is a natural thing, trying to do the best they could for their hunting public. And so they wanted the kind of most liberal regulations in terms of uh, season lengths and bag limits that they could possibly attain. And that's a reasonable thing for them to have wanted. And so naturally, they would tend to, you know, the hypothesis that favored that sort of uh, uh, regulatory preference was this compensatory mortality hypothesis. On the other hand, if you had um, somebody, for example, like we were sued, for example, by defi- We, the Fish and Wildlife Service, was sued by Defenders of Wildlife for black duck hunting regulations uh, shortly after I joined the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, since so there obviously there were some groups who very much favored the additive mortality hypothesis. And the interesting thing was was this idea of which hypothesis you favored often didn't have anything to do with data or what you happen to know about populations, but it happened – it had more to do with what your sort of other objectives were. Um, So anyway, that ended up being a real key source of of uncertainty.
1: Well, a couple of things that I'll say here is probably worth sharing uh, just for our listeners that these – the discussions around the effect of harvest on waterfowl populations is not dissimilar from the way conversations and analyses occur relative to the effect of harvest on other game bird populations. You know, I remember growing up, or I remember when I was in school at Mississippi State, there's the concept of, uh, and this is related to compensatory mortality, we want to harvest, uh, well, we refer to that, portion of the population that we harvest as the harvestable surplus. Surplus signifying that there's some portion of the population that's going to die uh, even in the absence of hunting mortality. And so, that's a component of the population that we want to harvest and not go too far beyond that. And so, uh, do I have that right, Jim? Am I remembering correctly that that idea of a harvestable surplus is a reflection of a compensatory mortality kind of hypothesis? Yeah. So, to me,
0: they're similar. And in fact, I, I just mentioned one sort of mechanism underlying compensatory mortality. The other one is very similar to ideas that Paul Arrington and people had uh, had about harvestable surplus, which was the idea that a population you can think of it as comprised of two different flavors of individuals, and, and of course it's not just two; it's a distribution of these. But but basically, you have sort of wimpy guys, you have individuals who aren't so um, adapted in terms of their ability to survive or make babies or whatever, and then you had individuals that were um, sort of a lot better off, and those they had a, a sort of a greater ability just by individual variation. Withstanding not only being you know, smart enough not to get shot by a hunter, but also being able to escape predators and such things. And so that's sort of the, this notion. That's one flavor of the harvestable surplus idea is this heterogeneity of individuals and the idea that hunting mortality or harvest takes sort of the weaker ones to begin with. And so the ones you have left were going to be the big contributors to the population anyway, and they're still around or a bigger
1: fraction of those. And I think an earlier episode that we had with Dr. Drew Fowler is one of the examples for which there is evidence of this uh, heterogeneity in the population. Uh, And and as you described it, there are some some wimpier birds that are in the population that are more vulnerable to harvest. And that's what Drew showed with some of his research relative to the harvest of snow geese during spring is that uh, those that were harvested over decoys, if I remember this correctly, tended to ha- be have lower body condition or from those harvested randomly, something of that nature. So anyway, there is evidence in support of that mechanism. Let's move into a discussion of uh, a more direct r- discussion of AHM. What we've just kind of talked about here is the, the fact that there's disagreement has been dis- at least back at that time, there was a fairly high level of disagreement among some of the stakeholders and some of the decision makers relative to harvest management about what the actual effect of harvest was on the population. That seems to be, if I'm getting this correctly, that seems to be sort of at the heart of the matter trying to make decisions on what the harvest should be is such that we're able to sustain the population, uh, provide harvest opportunities, you know, without, without doing, doing harm to the population. And in order to make those responsible decisions, you have to kind of understand the effects of of your harvest regulations on the populations. And so there was still a lot of debate about that is what you're, you're basically saying. And, and, and I guess there still is in some, in some respects, but, uh, but what was it about adaptive, what was it about that era, whether it be those discussions, what was it about maybe the state of our our understanding of population dynamics as it was occurring at that time, but what was it that led us to look to adaptive harvest management as a potential advancement in the way we tried to resolve some of our, some of our differences, some of our uncertainties about waterfowl harvest management?
0: Okay, well, in terms of the politics, I'll just sum up sort of what what you what you already have stated and what we talked about a minute ago. So right around in the uh sort of late 80s and 90s it was a time when basically hunters uh in many of the folks in the states were very interested again in in sort of fairly frequent changes in harvest regulations as a way to maximize duck harvest, the waterfowl harvest and it was a very natural thing for them to want to do. What was interesting, it was also a time when we were recognizing how little we actually knew about the effects of those regulations. And, for example, we'd have zones and splits and experimental teal seasons, and they were called experimental. But when you looked at the way that we actually evaluated them in the data that we had, as neat and great as those great big continental data sets are, when you start asking questions about effects of, a, as I say, of a, of a split season or a, or a zone within a particular state, all of a sudden those big numbers get really, really small in a hurry, and so that led to a couple of things that I view as sort of a uh, you know, watershed, but sort of, sort of key conclusions. So there was an envi- a supplemental environmental impact statement that was uh, published by the Fish and Wildlife Service in 1988, and John Taunton was the the guy who was assigned, he was actually headed it up. But one of their conclusions was that the amount of that basically our knowledge, our ability to fine tune things was such that we probably shouldn't be um, sort of uh, jacking around with or messing around with regulations quite as frequently as we had been. But that instead, we should um, evoke sort of a or invoke, excuse me, sort of a risk aversive conservatism. Where we realized that because we didn't know as much as we should, we ought to kind of operate conservatively, so as not to harm duck populations. And again, in a you know in a in a simple-minded way, that was consistent with the you know the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Basically, says okay, hunting is fine, and have nothing wrong with it at all, but as long as it's compatible with maintenance and persistence of waterfowl populations. So that was the. It was key that that was the um, sort of primary objective. And then if hunting could be fitted in with that, that was great. But if not, we had to pay first, pay attention to birds. So anyway, this environmental impact statement in 1988 came to that conclusion. Now, then there was a special session at the North American Wildlife Conference in 1989 that actually dealt with migratory birds and dealt with that uh, invi- that supplemental environmental impact statement In two papers in it, I'll focus on one. One of them was by um, a guy named Fred Johnson, who I'll talk a lot more about in me, uh, that dealt with our sort of inability, our sort of efforts to try to come at effect or try to develop inferences about effects of different regulation changes. And we ran into a lot of difficulties and basically uh, uh, talked about how difficult it was to do that sometimes. But then, at a much more general and broad level, uh, Kim Babcock and Raleigh Sparrow, Raleigh at that time was the uh, chief of the Office of Vigratory Bird Management, they had sort of a summary paper for that session. And in that summary paper, they once again came to the conclusion that there was just, there had been a lot of fine tuning that folks were interested in, in regulations that had been going on, but it was really, really hard to justify. And what they were suggesting is that one possible response of a large federal agency like Fish and Wildlife Service, who was charged with duck hunting regulations, a, re- a not unreasonable response would be to, to try to do away with as many of those fine tuning efforts as we could because we couldn't predict their effects. And there were even a suggestion in that paper, for example, maybe setting regulations at three year intervals. In other words, instead of setting a regulation every single year, well, we don't know enough to do that, so let's just do it every third year. And so both the supplemental environmental impact statement in 88 and that special session of the North American in 1989 basically led to this idea that we were uh, the kinds of things we were trying to do with regulations were way ahead of the actual knowledge that we had. And so that maybe we'd better slow down. And once again, this again was not it was not the kind of conclusion that was taken well by hunters, as you could imagine, because they were uh, in in a lot of the state biologists, they were um, much more focused on trying to implement those regulations that even if they didn't have firm evidence for, they were pretty darn sure based on their experience could actually bring their hunters more, more ducks. So, so neither group was being unreasonable, but there was absolutely a very big difference of opinion.
1: Jim, the fine tuning that you referred to, I, I think is in the same basket as the way Dale spoke about, uh, harvest managers in the era throughout, well, ever since the federal government obtained, uh, jurisdiction over the harvest of migratory birds, um, Dale, noted and we've been kind of stepping through in our past episodes examples of what the regulations were in terms of day length and bag limit and shooting hours and and all these little tweaks Dale referred to that as harvest managers never being never lacking creativity in how we in how we come up with harvest regulations and that's what you're talking about I think is the all these different fine aspects of fine tuning the harvest regulations but then what what others are saying is, yeah, we can do those and maybe we can, in our mind, say, come up with why it makes sense. But analytically, we don't have the data to effectively measure the impacts of that. Is that, is that a fair assessment?
0: That's exactly right. No, no way on earth would I ever say that those things were stupid or that people didn't, you know, that they weren't necessarily good ideas. But it's just that we hadn't, we, there was no way we could atta- obtain the evidence at that sort of fine scale Um, That actually supported them. And that was the bothersome part about
1: Jim another very important aspect of well any decision making process is going to be having an objective knowing what it is that you're trying to achieve. Through, through those decisions, through those actions. And I, I talked earlier just in a very general sense about our objective for harvest management is to provide harvest opportunity without uh, harming the population. But that's just a very nebulous description of, of an objective. And so, I, I know that one of the most important, and I'll ask you if, you, if it's the most important aspects of ad- adaptive harvest management or any kind of harvest management decision relates to the objective behind our decisions But at that time, uh, before adaptive harvest management is, was there also some lack of clarity, lack of consensus on what, what our objective was, how explicit was the objective for harvest management back in those times? And was that another one of the reasons why we kind of moved towards adaptive harvest management?
0: Yeah. So this is more personal opinion. I, I can't, yeah, i not positive what was true in everybody's head, but that—that's ex- exactly, um, I think, what one of the the issues was. And um, if you were a federal guy, if you were work for the feds, as I said, you went back to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and um, the maintenance and persistence of bird populations. That attained that that had primacy. That was your number one goal. And trying to permit hunting um, that was consistent with that was absolutely an objective as well, but it was clear which one was the dominant, uh, the primary objective, and that was maintenance of bird populations, and. What my guess is or what my, my thought is, is that a lot of times if you're a state waterfowl biologist or if you're a private outfit, if you're someone like D.U., you recognize that one of a very important objective is maintenance of your duck hunter population. You know, certainly over recent years, we've seen things about that that are alarming to, to those of us who, who enjoy and like duck hunting. And so... The, when you went into a regulations meeting, for example, when you went into one of the flyway meetings, um, they were never explicitly stated. But when you would have um, discussions or disagreements about whether, you know, for example, the reg- set of regulations that the feds would uh, propose for a particular year and when there was a backlash or response to that, um, very often it seemed to me to reflect the idea that there was this um, greater importance attached to the maintenance of the hunter population than the feds were sort of allowed to attach because of the uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so it did seem to me that differing objectives actually uh, came into play as part of the reasons underlying people's um, different ideas about what regulations ought to be.
1: Okay. So to summarize here, Based on my my understanding, my reading at that time prior to the implementation of AHM, we had uh, we had a highly complex regulatory environment. That some of the fine tuning that you're talking about, we had a lack of. Of common understanding about population dynamics. That was the the additive versus compensatory mortality hypotheses. And there's some other aspects of that as well. But the bottom line is we didn't have a common, confident understanding of waterfowl population dynamics and how harvest affected those. And then there was, as we just talked about here, lack of of clarity or lack of agreement on a clear, uh, uh, lack of agreement on an objective behind some of our decisions. So, then along comes adaptive harvest management as the solution to all of it, right? <laughs> I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but but that was that was sort of a characterization of the environment as I understand it, and adaptive harvest management was viewed as a potential path forward to begin to address some of those things in a maybe more coordinated, more consensus-driven, I don't even know if that's the right way of describing it, but just to try to make some progress on some of those issues and really move us forward in our understanding of waterfowl harvest management and the decisions around that. So, so Jim, I, I guess here is where we really transition to adaptive harvest management. Why don't we start I mean, you can you can clean up anything that I might have just said there. But uh, after you do that, why don't you start by giving a layperson description of what adaptive harvest management is? We'll have plenty of opportunity here as we go forward to get into all the different components and the details of it. But uh, how would you describe it to uh, to the average person? Yes,
0: yeah, so there are a bunch of, uh, sort of sort of the couple of sentence description is is basically is what you're trying to do is make a smart management decision where smart means you're trying to do something that are consistent with your objective, get you towards your objectives as best you can, but you're trying to do it in the face of uncertainty. And not only are you trying to make the smartest decision now in the face of the uncertainty that exists right at this moment when you have to make the decision, but in addition to that, you're trying to learn from the decision you make um, so that you can be even smarter in the future. In other words, you're trying to make a defi- decision now in the face of uncertainty and then try to simultaneously reduce that um, uncertainty so that decisions you make as you go further and further into the future are hopefully smarter in the sense that they're doing a better job of getting you towards your objectives. So if you had to ask me a two or three or whatever sentence summary, it would. that's kind of what you're trying to do.
1: The interesting thing here, Jim, is I I'll have to go back and listen to it, but I don't I don't think you mentioned waterfowl harvest at all in that definition, which was great that you didn't, because it reminds me that I I need to say that that adaptive management, adaptive resource management is not just restricted to waterfowl harvest. That's obviously the nature of our conversation here, and that's what AHM, adaptive harvest management, relates to. But adaptive resource management or adaptive management in general can be applied to any type of recurring decision. We talk about it also a lot on the habitat side of things, where when we talk about uncertainty, that, means we, that basically just means we don't fully understand how the system works and how it's going to respond to the management action that we put in place, whether it be a restoration activity, an enhancement activity, if we're talking about habitat, or any other kind of decision that we can envision or imagine that we're that we're undertaking as a as a hopeful way of achieving some objective. So there's there's incomplete understanding of how that system is going to respond to our action. And so I'm thankful that you, that you use that general dis- definition because it did prompt me to to remind folks that you know adaptive management is something that we that we preach that we talk about in, in basically every aspect of our of our waterfowl management that we do now adaptive harvest management is a bit unique because of the the formalization of that process. It has taken adaptive resource management to a very pure, uh, a very, uh, a more pure application of adaptive resource management than we, than we really see in any other aspect of waterfowl management. Um, and those are, we're, we're kind of getting into some of the, some very fine details there, but the fact that we have such longstanding and, and, valuable data streams on the harvest and population side of things allows us to allows us to go into this more formalized aspect of adaptive resource management around the harvest side of things. Does that make, am I getting that right? I, I kind of need you to serve as my backup here to make sure that I don't say anything that's wrong, Jim.
0: Yeah. Now, the only thing that I would, I would say a little bit in, in the, and there's a reason for this. It's just so people can, yeah, who have no matter what kind of decision can think about the potential to use this. You're exactly right. It is, this thing is more uh, with the duck harvest regulations. That's um, the first really good formal use, use of formal adaptive management that um, that I think exists. And I still cite it as the very best uh, example of that in the world. The, the only thing I take issue with a slight a slight bit is the idea of the the data needs for implementing adaptive management. And and in fact, this is is something that we get very frequently if we're uh, preaching use of adaptive management, say, for a different kind of problem, because we started out with the Mallards, for which exactly, as you said, we had this incredible data stream and had this all kinds of background information. Because of that, a very frequent comeback uh, from uh, a manager for some local sort of issue for, for example even a, a habitat issue or whatever might say well yeah that's easy for you guys because you had all these data for mallards but hey i've just got this small system and it's not that way uh it's, it's not anything like that but my claim is that adaptive ma- my claim would be that adaptive management is kind of the smartest way to make a management decision in the face of uncertainty almost no matter how much or little data you had. In other words, by landing just landed here from another planet, I think I'd still use that basic approach. Now it's going to be, it's going to hopefully operate a bit um, speedier, and it's going to be a bit easier to implement in cases where you have lots of data. You're absolutely right about that, but I think the general process is such that it's hard for me to imagine doing anything else uh, using any other approach if I have almost any problem that's, for, for which there's a lot of uncertainty.
1: That's that's fair. Uh, and I've, I've heard that before. And there definitely is some differences in the degree to which it, the well, I guess the speed at which we can learn about. It. That's the other thing that, that I guess is a key part of this, right, is that the outcome of adaptive management is is that we well we make a decision based on our best understanding but then we also kind of mon- we monitor the outcome of that decision and then update our understanding right to improve our decisions going forward so jim that's probably a good place for us to to wrap up this first episode we have introduced sort of the the atmosphere around waterfowl harvest regulations uh, in the in the, the late 80s and entering into the early 90s sort of predating Immediately predating adaptive harvest management coming on the scene, we've uh, we've kind of talked about some of the details of of that and we've uh, of that time. We've also we've also introduced what adaptive management is, and and uh, now the next step here in this conversation is going to be to talk in, to talk in a bit uh, in a bit more detail about how it was applied to to duck harvest management and so that's going to be the focus of our focus of our next episode so with that jim we're going to wrap up i'm going to thank you for joining us here on this episode and look forward to you to you joining us to uh, to continue the conversation so thank you jim okay well thank you
0: so much mike
1: a special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jim Nichols. We appreciate his time in introducing Adaptive Harvest Management for, uh, for Duck Regulations, and we look forward to additional conversations with him. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work that he does on these podcasts, getting them edited and out to you. And of course, to you, our listeners, we thank you for your time, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.